Chapter 2 Early Life of Christ A fourth distinguishing fact is that he does not fit, as the other world teachers do, into the established category of a good man. Good men do not lie. But if Christ was not all that he said he was, namely the Son of the living God, the Word of God in the flesh, then he was not just a good man. Then he was a knave, a liar, a charlatan, and the greatest deceiver who ever lived. If he was not what he said he was, the Christ, the Son of God, he was the Antichrist. If he was only a man, then he was not even a good man. But he was not only a man. He would have us either worship him or despise him. Despise him as a mere man, or worship him as true God and true man. That is the alternative he presents. It may very well be that the communists, who are so anti-Christ, are closer to him than those who see him as a sentimentalist and a vague moral reformer. The communists have at least decided that if he wins, they lose. The others are afraid to consider him either as winning or losing, because they are not prepared to meet the moral demands which this victory would make on their souls. If he is what he claimed to be, a savior, a redeemer, then we have a virile Christ and a leader worth following in these terrible times, one who will step into the breach of death, crushing sin, gloom, and despair, a leader to whom we can make totalitarian sacrifice without losing but gaining freedom, and whom we can love even unto death. We need a Christ today who will make cords and drive the buyers and sellers from our new temples, who will blast the unfruitful fig trees, who will talk of crosses and sacrifices, and whose voice will be like the voice of the raging sea. But he will not allow us to pick and choose among his words, discarding the hard ones and accepting the ones that please our fancy. We need a Christ who will restore moral indignation, who will make us hate evil with a passionate intensity and love goodness to a point where we can drink death like water. The Annunciation Every civilization has had a tradition of a golden age in the past. A more precise Jewish record tells us of a fall from a state of innocence and happiness through a woman tempting a man. If a woman played such a role in the fall of mankind, should she not play a great role in its restoration? And if there was a lost paradise in which the first nuptials of man and woman were celebrated, might there not be a new paradise in which the nuptials of God and man would be celebrated? In the fullness of time, an angel of light came down from the great throne of light to a virgin kneeling in prayer, to ask her if she was willing to give God a human nature. Her answer was that she knew not man, and therefore could not be the mother of the expected of the nations. There never can be a birth without love. In this the maiden was right. The beginning of new life requires the fires of love. But besides the human passion which begets life, there is the passionless passion and wild tranquility of the Holy Spirit. And it was this that overshadowed the woman, and begot in her Emmanuel, or God with us. At the moment that Mary pronounced fiat, or be it done, something greater happened than the fiat lux, let there be light, of creation. For the light that was now made was not the Son, but the Son of God in the flesh. By pronouncing fiat, Mary achieved the full role of womanhood, namely to be the bearer of God's gifts to man. There is a passive receptiveness in which woman says fiat to the cosmos as she shares its rhythm, fiat to a man's love as she receives it, and fiat to God as she receives the Spirit. Children come into the world not always as a result of a distinct act of love of man and woman. Though the love between the two be willed, the fruit of their love, which is the child, is not willed in the same way as their love for one another. There is an undetermined element in human love. The parents do not know whether the child will be a boy or a girl, or the exact time of its birth, for conception is lost in some unknown night of love. Children are later accepted and loved by their parents, but they were never directly willed into being by them. 
But in the Annunciation, the child was not accepted in any unforeseen way. The child was willed. There was a collaboration between a woman and the spirit of divine love. The consent was voluntary under the fiat. The physical cooperation was freely offered by the same word. Other mothers become conscious of motherhood through physical changes within them. Mary became conscious through a spiritual change wrought by the Holy Spirit. She probably received a spiritual ecstasy far greater than that given to man and woman in their unifying act of love. As the fall of man was a free act, so too the redemption had to be free. What is called the Annunciation was actually God asking the free consent of a creature to help him to be incorporated into humanity. Suppose a musician in an orchestra freely strikes a sour note. The conductor is competent, the music is correctly scored and easy to play, but the musician still exercises his freedom by introducing a discord which immediately passes out into space. The director can do one of two things. He can either order the selection to be replayed, or he can ignore the discord. Fundamentally, it makes no difference which he does, for that false note is traveling out into space at the rate of more than a thousand feet per second, and as long as time endures, there will be discord in the universe. Is there any way to restore harmony to the world? It can be done only by someone coming in from eternity and stopping the note in its wild flight. But will it still be a false note? The harmony can be destroyed on one condition only. If that note is made the first note in a new melody, then it will become harmonious. This is precisely what happened when Christ was born. There had been a false note of moral discord introduced by the first man which infected all humanity. God could have ignored it, but it would have been a violation of justice for him to do so, which is, of course, unthinkable. What he did, therefore, was to ask a woman, representing humanity, freely to give him a human nature with which he could start a new humanity. As there was an old humanity in Adam, so there would be a new humanity in Christ, who was God-made man through the free agency of a human mother. When the angel appeared to Mary, God was announcing this love for the new humanity. It was the beginning of a new earth, and Mary became a flesh-girt paradise to be gardened by the Adam new. As in the first garden Eve brought destruction, so in the garden of her womb Mary would now bring redemption. For the nine months that he was cloistered within her, all the food, the wheat, the grapes that she consumed served as a kind of natural Eucharist, passing into him who later on was to declare that he was the bread and the wine of life. After her nine months were over, the fitting place for him to be born was Bethlehem, which meant house of bread. Later on he would say, God's gift of bread comes down from heaven and gives life to the whole world. John 6.23 It is I who am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never be hungry. John 6.35 when the divine child was conceived, Mary's humanity gave him hands and feet, eyes and ears, and a body with which to suffer. Just as the petals of a rose after a dew close on the dew as if to absorb its energies, so too Mary as the mystical rose closed upon him whom the Old Testament had described as a dew descending upon the earth. When finally she did give him birth, it was as if a great ciborium had opened, and she was holding in her fingers the guest who was also the host of the world, as if to say, Look, this is the Lamb of God. Look, this is he who takes away the sins of the world. The Visitation Mary was given a sign that she would conceive by the Holy Ghost. Her elderly cousin Elizabeth had already conceived a son in her old age and was now in her sixth month. Mary, now bearing the divine secret within her, journeyed several days from Nazareth to the city of Hebron, which, according to tradition, rested over the ashes of the founders of the people of God, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Elizabeth, in some mysterious way, knew that Mary was bearing within herself the Messiah. She asked, How have I deserved to be thus visited by the mother of my Lord? Luke 1.43 This salutation came from the mother of the herald to the mother of the king whose path the herald was destined to prepare. John the Baptist, still cloistered in his mother's womb, 
on his mother's testimony, leaped with joy at the mother who brought the Christ to her home. Mary's response to this salutation is called the Magnificat, a song of joy celebrating what God had done for her. She looked back over history, back to Abraham. She saw the activity of God preparing for this moment from generation to generation. She looked also into an indefinite future when all peoples and all generations would call her blessed. Israel's Messiah was on his way, and God was about to manifest himself on earth and in the flesh. She even prophesied the qualities of the Son who was to be born of her as full of justice and mercy. Her poem ends by acclaiming the revolution he will inaugurate with the unseating of the mighty and the exaltation of the humble. The Prehistory of Christ The Lord to be born of Mary is the only person in the world who ever had a prehistory, a prehistory to be studied not in the primeval slime and jungles, but in the bosom of the Eternal Father. Though he appeared as the caveman in Bethlehem since he was born in a stable hewn out of rock, his beginning in time as man was without beginning as God in the agelessness of eternity. Only progressively did he reveal his divinity, and this was not because he grew in the consciousness of divinity, it was due rather to his intent to be slow in revealing the purpose of his coming. St. John at the beginning of his Gospel relates this prehistory as the Son of God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him, and without Him was made nothing that was made. John 1, 1 1-3 In the beginning was the Word. Whatever there is in the world is made according to the thought of God, for all things postulate thought. Every bird, every flower, every tree was made according to an idea existing in the divine mind. Greek philosophers held that thought was abstract. Now the thought or word of God is revealed as personal. Wisdom is vested in personality. Prior to his earthly existence, Jesus Christ is eternally God, the wisdom, the thought of the Father. In his earthly existence, he is that thought or word of God speaking to men. The words of men pass away when they have been conceived and uttered, but the word of God is eternally uttered and can never cease from utterance. By his word, the Eternal Father presses all that he understands, all that he knows. As the mind holds converse with itself by its own thought, and sees and knows the world by means of this thought, so does the Father see himself as in a mirror in the person of his word. Finite intelligence needs many words in order to express ideas, but God speaks once and for all within himself, one single word which reaches the abyss of all things that are known and can be known. In that word of God are hidden all the treasures of wisdom, all the secrets of sciences, all the designs of the arts, all the knowledge of mankind. But this knowledge, compared to the Word, is only the feeblest broken syllable. In the agelessness of eternity, the Word was with God. But there was a moment in time when He had not come forth from the Godhead, as there is a moment when a thought in the mind of man is not yet uttered. As the Son is never without its beam, so the Father is never without His Son. And as the thinker is not without a thought, so in an infinite degree, the divine mind is never without His Word. God did not spend the everlasting ages in sublime solitary activity. He had a word with him equal to himself. All things were made by him, and without him was made nothing that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shineth in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. John 1, 3-5 Everything in space and time exists because of the creative power of God. Matter is not eternal. The universe has an intelligent personality back of it, an architect, a builder, and a sustainer. Creation is the work of God. The sculptor works on marble, the painter on canvas, the machinist on matter, but none of them can create. They only bring existing things into new combinations, but nothing else. Creation belongs to God alone. God writes his name on the soul of every man. Reason and conscience are the God within us in the natural order. 
The fathers of the early church were wont to speak of the wisdom of Plato and Aristotle as the unconscious Christ within us. Men are like so many books issuing from the divine press, and if nothing else be written on them, at least the name of the author is indissolubly engraved on the title page. God is like the watermark on paper, which may be written over without ever being obscured.